Hello everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your beleaguered yet buoyant host, Cooper Wilhelm, and I'm excited today, in this incredibly hot day in Brooklyn, to bring you my interview with J. Allen Cross about his new book, American Brujeria, Modern Mexican-American Folk Magic. So we talk about his brujeria practice, we talk about folk Catholicism, we talk about Santa Muerte, uh, we talk about Vic's Vapor Rob. It's just a great, wide-ranging conversation about a book that is replete with information, just jam-packed with great stuff. Really something you should you should check out. And it was a great interview to do. He was very charming and also uh, very patient with me as I dealt with my aging cat who uh, bit me during the interview. So if you if you keep a special ear out, you might be able to figure out when exactly that occurs. It's okay, she didn't break the skin. So that's a great interview, but before we get there, of course, we have our Plague Magic Minute. Again, these are things to consider attempting, adapting, trying, in addition to following standard health guidelines. You know, we might even be putting these in here uh, for the purposes primarily of historical interest, though I think there is a lot to be said for what people have tried in the past. Did it work a little bit? Maybe something worth thinking about. But today's Plague Magic Minute comes to us from the 1672 second edition of the queen-like closet or rich cabinet stored with all manner of rare receipts for preserving, candying, and cookery very pleasant and beneficial to all ingenious persons of the female sex by Hannah Woolley. And it's interesting because, of course, you know, the second edition comes out in 1672, so a scant seven years after that uh, Royal College of Physicians tract on the plague that we talked about in the last episode and a bare scant six years after 1666 the year that london was beset with both plague and widespread fire in a year named for the number of the beast so you know it's it's perhaps not surprising that a recipe for plague water which is what we're looking at today is the second recipe in this book i'm sure still fresh on a lot of people's minds, so I do appreciate the chipper tone talking about a useful bit of medicine for probably one of the most horrific things that anyone had experienced in living memory. But we have here our recipe for plague water, and it is as follows. Take three pints of muscadine, muscadine is a kind of grape, boil therein one handful of sage and one handful of rue until a pint be wasted, then strain it out and set it over the fire again. Put thereto a pennyworth of long pepper, half an ounce of ginger, and a quarter of an ounce of nutmegs, all beaten together, boil them together a little while close covered, then put to it one pennyworth of mithridate, two pennyworth of Venice treacle, one quarter of a pint of hot angelica water. Take one spoonful at a time, morning and evening always warm, if you be already diseased, if not, once a day is sufficient all the plague time. And we were told that it is most excellent medicine and never faileth if taken before the heart be utterly mortified with the disease. It is also good for the smallpox, measles, and surfeits. And it's interesting, this recipe, right? Because it is a recipe for a kind of plague treatment, but it contains within it two ingredients that are themselves incredibly elaborate, or can be incredibly elaborate, plague cures. So we have we have mithridate, which a version of this gets talked about actually in that in that tract from last week from the Royal College of Physicians, but it's, it was supposedly a sort of cure-all of lore that was that was developed by an ancient king to protect himself from being poisoned. And it had a, a, a wide number 
of ingredients to sort of be an antidote to everything, including some things that I think themselves might have been poisonous. But of course, it's one of those things where, you know, it, 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 it disappears into lore because there's a question of like what's actually inside of it. Impossible to say. There is a very simple recipe for it that appears that I think Pliny poo-poos and says this is ridiculous. But then that's more or less the recipe that shows up in the track from 1665 from the last episode, which is, I believe, walnuts and figs, essentially. It's it's maybe not the entire walnut. It might just be the husk or something like that. But I think the historic idea of it is that it was quite complicated. And then you look at, you know, this uh, Venice treacle, which is not just uh, molasses, but it is, in fact, again, an incredibly complicated recipe that might have been an attempt to to update Mithridate and sort of have like a Mithridate for the for the 90s though you know the 90s in this case is you know the, like 15 or 1600s or something like that which but you know again incredibly complicated tons of ingredients including I think viper meat and opium and cinnamon so you know you're you're soured and you're sweet a little bit there but uh, a fun little thing to consider and you know it's a great idea of just like well if you have a working cure for the plague why not add that to three other ones into one big cure Though it does make it seem as though this would be quite an expensive thing to put together. But I guess that's why it is, in fact, a queen-like closet and rich cabinet. Because it is, you know, opulence, luxury, self-care. Very fun. So that's your Plague Magic Minute. And now I have my interview with uh, Jalen Cross for you. I hope you enjoy it. He's a lot of fun. Cat is a lot of fun. I'm okay. But those two together, a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy we are going to hope and pray that my Wi-Fi decides to continue living. Um. Okay. Prayers for the Wi-Fi. I need to figure out who the patron saint of Wi-Fi is, because I um, a bunch of people I know just like started rolling their ankles in the last couple of weeks, and it turns out that the patron saint of ankles had his feast day last Thursday. Oh. And did any of us remember? No. And so he has every right to be pissed off. You know, I agree. That sounds about right. Okay, so thank you so much for being on. The book is great. Huge fan of the book. We should talk, I think, about the title for a second, because, you know, American Brujeria, this word, brujo, bruja, you know, I think some people hear it and they think, like, it's just Spanish for witch, and they're like, you know, if you were a Wiccan and you're from Mexico, you'd call yourself a bruja. And I think, you know, especially in places like Spain, there's a tendency for it to mean something that's not quite human right like a like a like a bruja is something closer to like a vampire or a demon like maybe they come in through the keyhole of your house if you don't leave like rice on the floor for them to count or something like that so when you use brujo or bruja what are you talking about and what makes an american brujo or bruja distinct from even that that is an excellent question so what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a separation between, you know, real traditional Mexican brujería and what we are referring to as brujería in the United States, because those are, are two very different things. In the United States, we, first of all, we really like to put anything magical under the heading of witchcraft. And at the same time, we also really like to kind of reclaim and sort of sanitize or, or flip the script on all things that we had once held negative about witchcraft. So whereas back in the day, you know, if someone was a witch or was practicing witchcraft, they were doing bad things. They were, you know, a bad person. But nowadays in modern time, you know, witch is simply a synonymous term with, you know, a, a healer who's very connected with the earth and with the cycle of the seasons and things like that, which is very different from kind of our classical understanding of the words witch and witchcraft. And in 
Mexico and in a lot of Latin American countries, because brujería is not just specific to Mexico, it's found all over. Brujería is actually not only not an umbrella term, it's a specific type of magic, kind of like how we have Wicca and then we have voodoo and then we have, uh, you know, powwow, things like that. They're all separate paths of magic. So in Mexico, we don't use brujería as a blanket term for all things magical. It's a very specific path. And it's also not always the most well-received path either because brujería is, traditional Mexican brujería is very forceful. It's very dark. It's a very harsh form of magic that often requires a lot of things like blood, animal sacrifices, things like that, which is very far from what it is that we're doing in the United States and calling brujería which in the United States is a lot more things like doing uh, limpias or, or, you know, spiritual cleansings and healings and, you know, novena candle magic, you know, and working with saints and Guadalupe and things like that, which are types of Mexican folk magic, but it's not necessarily what we would call brujería in Mexico. It's, it's not the same thing. They're very different practices. So when I came out with this book, I really didn't want to then erase or kind of replace the traditional understanding of brujería with what it is that we're doing in the United States. I wanted to make sure that I was very clear that this practice is different. However, in the United States, we are calling it brujería. And I think that that's something that we need to kind of understand that depending on where you go and who you're talking to, words will change meaning and the weight that they have will also change, which is kind of important to understand. So I didn't want anyone to read my book and think, oh, this is old school traditional brujería, because what I'm really focused on is the modern Mexican-American folk magic that I'm seeing around me. And that's what the book is essentially about. That's really, you know, it's really important to like have this idea of like connotation and like just specificity in these sorts of things. So like what gives someone the right to call themselves a bruja or a bruja? What like how do you cuz I think a lot of people again like if we if we if they're like coming there's like it's kind of like witch like they're going they they might think like oh I'm a spiritual person, I have some crystals. I have I have, you know, held dirt in my hand and thrown it at the moon. I you know, I'm a witch. Can I also just say like I've done that, and also now I have the I have a statue of the Virgin of Guadalupe in my house, so I'm doing I'm doing brujeria right now. <laughs> That's an excellent question because you're right. There is kind of some gray areas. So there's there's a few things when it comes to Mexican magic that's kind of different from how we experience it here in the United States. In Mexico, and honestly, a lot of places around the world, we don't really subscribe to this idea that, oh, everyone's a witch, everyone can do magic, it's something that everybody can do. That's not something that we find a lot around the world. What we what we often find is that people who are supposed to do this work are, are given some sort of a gift, something that makes them different. And in, in Mexico, we would call this their don, which is kind of like their, their kind of spiritual purpose here and and the the don can manifest in a lot of different ways certain people have it for healing other people have it for you know seeing the dead or whatever it's just kind of a, a spiritual gift so it's, it's often something that people are told that they that they need to show in order to really really be like a brujo or a bruja you you need to have the don on top of that in the united states though we love to make money off of spirituality which you means sure that do. the party line has to be everyone can do this because it doesn't sell well if you say well only some of you can do this so we we it, that's again one of the major differences that we have between how this is done in mexico versus how it's done here i i think first of all we need to sort of understand 
you know, kind of where our borders are, you know, what this means in Mexico versus what this means in the United States. But also at the same time, I think when it comes to any spiritual title, we have to ask ourselves if we, you know, are we ready to defend this title? Because I see a lot of times people put on spiritual titles that really mean something, you know, titles like shaman, you know, these are, are people who had, you know, very important functions within, you know, certain cultures and systems where people would go to them, they would help them, they would be able to actually provide services. It was so much more than just, I own a couple of crystals. And so I, I really think that people just need to take a little bit of time, slow down and make sure that they actually know what they are doing before they start using titles like that. Because that's something that we're running into a lot these days. And especially when it comes to words like brujo and bruja that are very taboo and also kind of culturally specific. I think it's really important that we take a moment and make sure that we feel that that title is right for us and that we understand the meaning and that we feel that we have the knowledge and understanding to, to actually back it up. That, that we are, are able to call ourselves this. Similarly, I would not call myself a mechanic because I own a wrench. <laughs> you definitely do not want me working on your car, I, I assure you. And it's, and it's a little bit the same way, magically speaking, and with spiritual titles. Does there, like, is there like a sense of responsibility that comes with this title as well? Like, it's not, is it, because it sounds sort of like, you know, you have to put in the work and you have to do, like, there are certain conditions to meet, certainly, but once you kind of, like, take this on yourself, is there a sense that, like, you should make yourself available to the community in a very specific way or that there are certain taboos you now need to follow is there like a formal initiation like how how rigorous of a structure do you conceive of with this path well when it comes to american brujeria as as we practice it in the united states it's it's not very rigorous, simply because it, it is a, a working and functioning folk magic, which means that, that it's a, a common magic that we see with kind of most people within this culture and kind of how they're they're handling the magic. So it's not something that we really have initiations for or anything like that. But when we utilize a spiritual title, it really says not only to the people around us, but also to the spirit world that we are open for business. And because, you know, if, if you weren't going to be helping people, if you weren't going to be offering your services as a brujo or a bruja or brujex or, or however it is you choose to identify, then there's no reason for the title. You're, you're simply you doing your thing by yourself. <laughs> so to, to give yourself a title really says, you know, kind of like I'm open for business and that can be good. And that can also be a very tricky thing. So something else that we run into and that we talk about in the book is a curanderismo and People come to curanderos not just for spiritual healing, but also for physical healing as well. In a lot of people, in, in a lot of places in Latin America, people don't have access to doctors, but they do have access to curanderos. And certain types of curanderos might be midwives, might specialize in fixing and setting bones that are broken. And some of them are also like specialists for herbal remedies, all kinds of stuff like that. And if you don't know what you're doing and you're advertising yourself as a curandero, you could be very liable if someone comes to you and has a, a physical ailment that you try and treat, but you don't know how and you're not a medical professional, that, that can be a very slippery slope sometimes. Yeah, like it's, you know, don't worry about, don't worry about this rash. The spirits are going to guide me. Is a good, like sometimes they will, I think, in a lot, for a lot of people, but still, you can't get that MD maybe also. I don't, you brought up actually spirits and there's, it, there's so much here about spirits that I, I want to, like pick your brain about because it's fascinating stuff and also i think very useful for a lot of people even if they're not necessarily working in this path but something that, that occurred to me is that there are a lot of helpers in this book spiritually speaking people you know beings that one could avail oneself to 
But I was curious, if you start walking down this path, are there malicious spirits that you might start drawing the attention of more because you're doing these sorts of specific things? Because there's a lot of protection magic in here. There's a lot of cleansing magic in here. Besides the sort of ethical concerns of, of following this path, is there is there also like a sense of, you know, there are things you need to watch out for because they're going to come for you now that you've started started doing things in this particular vein? If you put up this flag, who's going to see it and get mad, basically, I guess is the question. Absolutely. So as as kind of like I was saying earlier, where like once you take on a spiritual title like witch or bruja or healer or anything like that, it definitely does send a signal that you're open for business, but not just to people around you, but also to the spirit world. You know, when you declare that you have this ability and this knowledge, then that triggers a ripple in the spirit world and spirit is going to take notice of it and are going to come to inspect. And not all of those spirits are going to be helpful and not all of them are going to be friendly. On the side, I also do a lot of paranormal investigation work um, where we get called to haunted houses. And I have seen a dramatic uptick since witchcraft and spirituality have been trending of haunted homes that are haunted by very scary things. And I go into this home and immediately there's always kind of like this sense, it's it's almost like a like a smell or like a stink of kind of like someone who's been dabbling in the occult. And that's kind of why the haunting has been triggered. And so usually I zero in on it right away. I come out and I'm like, hey, so which one of you is doing the witchcraft? And like one person is usually like, well, you know, I guess that might be me. And I'm like, okay, can you tell me what it is that you're doing? They're like, well, you know, just like I'm doing my own thing, really. I'm just kind of manifesting abundance and, you know, connecting with the divine. And they have no idea what they're doing. Not a clue. And that's something that that is really concerning for me, especially because we live in this day and age of everyone can do witchcraft. There are no rules to witchcraft. Witchcraft is completely safe. And that's not entirely true because we are dealing with entities on the other side. And when we kind of start, you know, giving ourselves titles or kind of splashing around in this magical spiritual world, it's going to create ripples and things are going to kind of be attracted to that. And Honestly, I find your first haunting to be kind of an initiatory step when you do any sort of witchcraft. You never forget your first one. Right, because I think it's honestly, it's it's just part of it, right? It's the spirit world challenging you. Like, okay, if you're going to be a witch, now handle this. We're going to test you. We're going to, you know, set up a haunting in your house. Are you able to actually do something about this? And people are very interested in witchcraft for the things that it can bring them as far as like money and abundance and getting a boyfriend and like all this stuff. But they don't actually take it seriously to the point where they learn their cleansing. They learn their protection. They learn how to work with spirit in a safe way. They, they like to skip all that because that's not fun. And then that causes issues for them. So pretty much any path of magic or witchcraft that you're doing, there's going to be things that come to test you to make sure that what you are doing is true. You will get checked at some point. And if you are not ready for that, it's not going to go well for you. That's a, I mean, that's also just such a nice positive spin on it too, right? Because it's not just that there are things out there and they're hungry and they're, you know, they they smell you now. It's also like they're they're here to help a little bit in their kind of mean way. They're, it's the tough love of things that that go bump in the night. Speaking of like your first haunting, and I did not know you did paranormal research that rules. How did you get started yourself? Because I, I I get the sense from from the introduction to your book that this is something that you really had to reclaim 
for yourself? Did someone sort of bring you into this or did this, was this like a research thing? Did you, did you suddenly see something one night and go, oh, I get, I live in, this is the world that I live in now, the world of ghosts and such. Yeah, so I, I grew up in, in a magical family. We weren't, you know, in any specific tradition or anything like that. But my entire family has, you know, what we call sort of the gifts. And, and that varies widely from intense psychic experience to kind of energy basing. So for instance, my grandmother was a visionary. She would have visions and she would hear the voice of God, or that's how she described it. She would say, the heavenly father is speaking to me. And he would tell her all kinds of things. And they were pretty much always right, which was interesting. We, we always thought she was a little crazy, but also she was always pretty much onto something, which was important. My mother, similarly, she speaks to animals and she gets something that we call the death tingle that starts about a week, week and a half before someone we know dies. Oh, and geez. also... <laughs> She was adopted, so we found her family, her her birth family, when I was real young. And, you know, at first it was all this kind of like, oh, you know, you have the family eyes and the family ears or like all that stuff and kind of like, you know, bonding. But after everyone got really comfortable, then suddenly one by one, they all started coming forward like, so does anything weird happen with you guys? And we're like, what do you mean? They're like, you get angry and like a light bulb bursts or you get sad and the bathroom floods. <laughs> And we're like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. And they're like, okay, that's something that, that's going on with all of us. And so that was something that we did kind of embrace growing up. Even, even though I was raised Catholic, I was also raised with a mother who would read tarot cards at the dinner table. And I, I have vivid memories of blue candles full of black glass to banish an unruly boss and things like that. So it's something that I was definitely raised in and raised around. And me coming to study and learn about witchcraft was really out of necessity. It wasn't something that I was like, oh, this is something that I find neat. I'm going to make it my hobby now. It was more of a something is happening to me. Something is coming out of me and I need it to either stop or or figure out how to handle it. Um, so I went to witchcraft and also went through psychic training in order to handle that. Hmm. When you say psychic training, was this like a like a formal like sort of class kind of situation or do you just sort of like you know find the resources and kind of figure it out hello sorry my cat <laughs> it was a lot of resource hunting it was a lot of book learning i was also blessed to have an aunt who has similar gifts to mine where we both can communicate with the dead and so she was kind of the first one to sort of take me to a haunted location and we were able to sort of help the spirit that was there which was a very impactful experience on me as a kid and so I, I at least had some support in that realm, which was really nice. That's great. I mean, like, it's also just nice to have the, you know, like the almost the family business of it, or at least the family narratives. Speaking of being raised Catholic. Oh, my gosh. OK, one sec. I might, I might take this cat somewhere because she is she just really <laughs> wants to participate in this conversation. Sorry, sweetie. Sorry about that. She, uh, when she gets meowing, she does not stop, which has been great except for at two in the morning. Okay, so speaking of being raised Catholic, this book, the magic in it, the worldview, it's all very Catholic, which is great. Though I, I, I wonder, because like, again, we, we, we talk about like the, the general sort of like, why do people do witchcraft kind of thing? And like, I feel like there are a lot of people who sort of approach witchcraft and they say, I want to live a spiritual life, but I don't want to do it under the auspices of something sort of authoritarian, like, you know, a traditional religion can feel. Do you have to be Catholic to do this? And also, like, how traditional, or not even traditional, how sort of top-down 
authoritative is the Catholicism in this? Absolutely. So to answer your first question, you don't have to be Catholic to do it. You do, however, have to believe. So what, what I mean is, is, is you don't have to identify as Catholic. You don't have to go to church on Sunday. You don't have to read the Bible. However, if you are going to pray to St. Jude or to Guadalupe or to Mary, you have to believe and understand that there's something on the other side of that. Because I've, for, for instance, I have had people try to book services with me, like tarot readings, and they've started their message to me with, I know that you're not legit and you're a scammer, but I would like to have a tarot reading done by you. <laughs> and I, I'm like, okay. <laughs> first of all, no. Second of all, no. Like, and, and that's kind of a similar energy that you would be bringing to something like a saint or to Guadalupe if you were like, I hate you and everything that you stand for. However, can you get me a new job? We need to kind of look past ourselves. It's really surprising the amount of times that people can't get over themselves or their own biases or their own issues. And then that limits their spiritual ability and their spiritual journey simply because they don't like something or they don't or they don't necessarily identify with it which if you don't identify with it or you don't want to work in this system that's absolutely fine there's an entire world of magic out there that goes at it from a hundred different directions this is just kind of specifically the direction that this one ends up coming from and we also have to understand too that the catholicism in it is simply the blanket that is put over it, right? It's not the same thing as traditional mainstream Catholicism that you would find in the United States. And it, it has very little to do with the church and the Pope and, and all of these things. Because when, when you start talking about Catholicism or Christianity in general, people immediately start blaming all wars and genocide and slavery on Christianity, which is absolutely correct. Like there is a lot of things that Christianity did as a institution and as a, you know, capital T, capital C, the church. However, we have to separate God and the holy powers from what was done by people, because those are two very different things. I, I always kind of compare it to a, a long time ago, there was this man, I believe his name was John Hinckley, and he sent a series of letters to Jodie Foster when she was very young, saying, I'm going to make an assassination attempt on Reagan for you, because I think it's what you would want. I think it would impress you. And he did. He went forth and, and attempted to assassinate President Reagan. That was not Jodie Foster's fault. Like, she had nothing to do with that. And I, I, I feel kind of the same way when it comes to God and the holy powers and things like that. Because they, they had no part in this awful, awful thing that, that people did, that humans did. And so I think it's important that we sort of separate those two things. Because colonization was terrible. The genocide is terrible. The slavery that came out of Christianity as an institution is, is really awful. However... The spiritual side, the actual communing with the divine and with the saints and with the angels and things like that is, is very different. And when we work into folk magic, especially what we call folk Catholicism, which mm -hmm. is where you take Catholicism and then you kind of blend it in with the beliefs systems that were already in place when the Catholicism arrived, then you get a whole different ballgame and a different understanding of these spirits that are actually quite different from traditional Catholic doctrine yeah. in a way. It's, it's a very different God that we're speaking with. And it's a, it's, it's a much bigger and more complicated. And I'm hoping any of this makes sense. <laughs> well, this makes perfect sense. Actually, what was nice about this book is, you know, I think 
especially in the last couple of years in the States, more and more people are talking about folk Catholicism as like a, as a way of approaching magic, as a way of approaching Catholicism, honestly, you know, like taking things into the Catholic extended universe. But you don't normally see like something that approaches a how-to. Except this book feels like it's kind of approaching a how-to of, like, if you want to try folk Catholicism, here's what to do, as opposed to, like, sort of, I think, a lot of, like, anthropological or theoretical studies. And so, to give people, like, a good intro on, like, folk Catholicism, where's that going? Where's the flexibility there? Like, I, I think it might be good to talk about, like, some folk saints, which your book does a lovely job of doing. So, let's, let's, let's jump right to the end of the list here. Tell me about Santo Toribio. Yeah, Santo Toribio, he's one of my most beloved saints. So Santo Toribio is often known as the patron saint of border crossings. And a lot of times people who have been attempting a border crossing or have been in some sort of trouble near the border often report seeing his apparition or, or interacting with someone who looks quite a bit like him. And he often helps them out. So for instance, people, so first we have to understand that a border crossing, I, I think a lot of times people assume that a border crossing is you just kind of like hop across the line very carefully and then you're free and it's good to go. Border crossing can take months. It's it's a huge undertaking. And the window or the the kind of doorway across the border gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And right now, currently the only way through into the United States is through a very, very dangerous section of desert that is very hot. There's no water and a lot of people die attempting a border crossing right now. So people will find themselves lost, severely dehydrated in the desert, and they'll talk about seeing apparitions of Santo Toribio, who gives them water or, or points them in the right direction or does something else to, to help them. I had a very interesting experience with Santo Toribio where... It was right when kind of the border crisis really hit, where we're, we're suddenly seeing, you know, kids in cages on the news and things like that. I had what I thought was kind of a very unique and brilliant idea that I was going to light one of his candles and ask him to help. And as a medium, I do sometimes have a very sort of visceral interaction with saints, not always, but sometimes. And so I light his candle and I set out a little bit of water and some flowers as a as kind of an offering of thank you and asking him to go help them. Well, I didn't really feel his presence, so I kind of went about my business and I'm in my kitchen doing some dishes and my uh, working room is sort of directly behind me. And I suddenly get this sense that there's someone there. I kind of hear the sound like a bell. And so I go into my working room and he's there. And he looks tired, like real tired and raggedy. And I'm like, oh my God, are you okay? And he's like, yes. He's like, I just wanted to let you know that we are doing our best. He's like, all we can really do right now is just provide comfort. And the one thing that really was overwhelming coming from him was how thirsty he was because of where he spends so much of his time, what he does, you know, with the desert and, and with how hard he's working. I, I immediately went and got like a big old quart-sized mason jar of water and I put it on the altar for him. And I think I even popped open like a LaCroix uh, to, to give to him because I just got this overwhelming sense that he was just so thirsty. And that was a really pivotal moment for me when it comes to working with saints to realize that sometimes, sometimes they're already working on something before we even ask them. And sometimes what they really need is, is our support so that they can continue to do the work. We always think about saints supporting us. 
And we never really think about, oh, you know, this border thing is happening. So the patron saint of border crossings could really use some help. So maybe I'll light a candle to maybe help support him or I'll put out some water or things like that in order to help support whatever he can do to help people. That's that is really interesting, because I, I feel like a lot of people when they when they talk about like developing a relationship with the spirit, especially, you know, I, I feel like less so with saints, but still even with saints, there's like a very strong air of like this is a purely transactional kind of thing. You know, I, 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 I call up um, completely blanking on the entire uh, cult of the saints. Uh, Saint uh, Gabriel. Well, he's an angel. Okay. Uh, uh, um, Saint Roche. I call up Saint Roche. I offer Saint Roche a piece of bread if he will help me with the Saint Roche thing, which I guess would be uh, sickness. Okay. He clears up my rheumatism. Here's some bread for Saint Roche. But when you're developing like a relationship with a saint, or you're trying to kind of make a connection like how it doesn't sound like it's transactional is it is it more sort of like a you know i help you you help me we're we're friends is it kind of devotional like how does it how do you conceive of that relationship i think it can be a few different ways i do think that it can be transactional but i think that the saints are unique in that respect and and here's kind of why so the saints their sort of job here is to oversee what we're doing and to intercede when they can that that is their kind of their purpose is to be here for us to call upon and and ask for help so i i do think that in in that manner it opens itself to being transactional because that is their purpose whereas sometimes when people come up to a deity well that deity's job is to oversee the universe or the underworld or you know whatever it is they have a different job to do so if they are going to grant you something they then need to take the time and the effort to specifically tend to that. So I, I like to think about it kind of like, you know, you can call up a plumber and be like, hey, this is your job to come fix this. Can you do that? And then you pay them and then, you know, the, the work gets done. But at the same time, too, sometimes you find a plumber that you really, really like and they do a great job. And so you want to keep them around. So you might, you know, call on them more. You might make sure that when they get there, there's, you know, coffee that's ready. You know, you might remember when their kids' birthdays are, things like that, and really kind of develop a relationship with this person because they are so helpful to you in your life and you actually very much appreciate what they're able to do for you. So I, I do think that on occasion it can be transactional, but also it will then kind of go deeper, at least if, if you're open to that. It can definitely go deeper and be more of a friendship or a relationship. Someone who gets to know you, gets to know your home, your plumbing, all that stuff. And so they're more able to help you. And so I think that strengthening that relationship is really beneficial, especially when it comes to saints. That's great. And like, what is like a standard sort of like introductory kind of thing that you would do with a saint? Like a new, like it's the first time you've got a problem. You looked up the patron saint of, I, for some reason, bees come to mind. Let's say you've been, the bees, they're, they're singing everyone all the time in the house. You, you get, you know, the patron saint of bees up to, to do something about it. Like, how do you sort of begin that conversation? Absolutely. So I always recommend getting an image of the saint. And it doesn't have to be a statue. It can be a saint card. I work with those a lot. Or if you wanted to print one off that you found on the internet, or even just pull up a picture on your phone and set it up on your altar, whatever kind of image you can find is great. I also like novena candles for that because they're kind of like three in one. They have the image, they're a candle, and they have a prayer on the back. So they're really helpful for that. But you know, just kind of get an image for them 
light a candle. It doesn't have to be a fancy candle. You can light a tea light and then put out some sort of an offering. That might be a little incense. That might be a little glass of water. That might be some flowers or something that you know that they have a preference for. Because some saints have certain things that they really like. So Saint Expedite is really known for loving kind of pound cake. Saint Joseph has this thing for lima beans that I don't totally understand. But, you know, certain <laughs> saints will have an affinity for something. So you just, just put out just like a little offering. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be fancy. And just pray and ask them for their help and, and see what happens. I, I always recommend when it comes to prayer or any sort of spirit work that sincerity is key. You can rattle off 15 Hail Marys while thinking about your grocery list or something else or how dumb you think it is or whatever. And that's not going to be helpful. But if you can really level with the spirit and just be like, look, St. Anthony, I really, really need this. It would mean so much to me. Just just being very sincere and being very honest, I find is is the most effective way to really connect with a saint. And the saints, in sort of like a folk Catholic sort of understanding of the saints, oh, she's back. Amazing. They often are sort of doing a kind of double duty or triple duty. And I I was wondering if you could talk on that, because I think this is a really important concept in folk Catholicism. And it's just sort of in general, this idea of the polyvalent saint. So we could maybe uh, talk about, I mean, actually, this might be a good time to talk about the the Virgin of Guadalupe, because she isn't just the Virgin Mary. There's something there's something else going on there. Could you could you speak on this for a moment? Absolutely. So she is kind of a crossroads herself. So in in the book, I kind of talk about, you know, being someone who is Mexican and American and being mixed, you know, you're kind of a liminal space where you're two things at once, like a crossroads. And Guadalupe is is very, very similar to that, where she is two things at once. And and that's in, in multiple respects. And it's so funny because often certain times people will be standing on one side or the other and really only view her one way. But I think the bulk of her power comes from the fact that she is two things at once. So on one hand, she is an ancient indigenous goddess known as Tonensin, who is a powerful Mother Earth goddess, who is kind of the mother of all, you know, she brings corn. Um, There's not a whole lot that we really for sure know about her because so much was destroyed during colonization. But we do know that she was a very powerful mother goddess. And her images and her kind of, her iconography is very similar to what we see in Guadalupe. And when the Virgin of Guadalupe appeared, she appeared in a very specific place on top of Mount Tepeyac where she asked them to build her a shrine right there. And that happened to be in the same place that the shrine to Tonensin was before it was demolished by the conquistadors. So we we very much get the sense that she is Tonensin. At the same time, if you look at the image of Guadalupe, it's very clearly Marian in nature. Like there is no way to look at that and go, oh, this has nothing to do with what we know as the Virgin Mary. So on both sides, she is she's both, right? She is a blend. On one end, she is Tonensin. On the other end, she is Virgin Mary. And that blending 
is very important. And it's something that even comes out in her image. It is said that when you stand on one end of the basilica and view the image, she looks very indigenous. But then when you cross to the other side of the basilica and look at it, she looks very European. And I think that that is important because whenever we're talking about deities or goddesses or gods or any of these things, we have to understand that it's so much more complicated than we would like to believe. And anytime we try to categorize them or put them into a box or say they're this way or that way, then we we are we're not fully seeing them. And so I'm trying to put this into a way that's not that's at least a little bit understandable. I, I think it's very possible that Don Ancine and the Virgin Mary are the same spirit anyway, being viewed by different people. And same thing with like, we see a lot of crossover between Mary and spirits like Hakate as well, that they are all part of the divine feminine or their emanations of it or different facets or faces of it. So this is a lot to unpack in a podcast, so I apologize. I do think that it is possible that they are very much, very much the same, just different faces that different people know them by. And I think Guadalupe was kind of a way of bridging that and being like, like, yes, absolutely indigenous, but also European. And we can all kind of live together in the same place. And so when you're when you're approaching her, like with this awareness of the incredibly complex nature that she has, and the fact that she's sort of, you know, not either or, but both, and kind of a third thing, because she is both. Is it, does that, I don't know. I mean, do you have to approach her in a very complex way to kind of, to pay homage to that? Or is it just sort of, you know, I need to talk to the Virgin today, so I'm I'm going to sort of approach it more that direction. I need to talk to this goddess more, so I'm going to approach it more with that kind of in mind. Or, like, how do you, how do you kind of incorporate all that into a kind of relationship? Or is that just too huge of a question? It's funny because it's so complicated that it goes around the bend and becomes simple. That the truth is, is that it doesn't matter. What you're connecting with is the mother. You mm. can call that Guadalupe, or you can call it Tonensin, or you can call it Mary, or Persephone, or Agate. But what you are, what you are connecting with is the divine feminine. It's a little bit like, because a, a lot of these goddesses especially will be like Russian nesting dolls. Where, so you have, so if, if, if we look at Mary, right, we have Our Lady of Lords, we have Our Lady of the Rocks, we have Stella Maris, we have Our Lady Undoer of Knots, Our Lady Mother of Angels, all of these different names. Now, Our Lady of Lords and Our Lady of the Rocks are not the same spirit, but Our Lady of Lords and Our Lady of the Rocks are Mary. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 the hard part, right? And then so we see this too with like with like Akate. So so Akate, she has different names as well, very similar to Mary, where she has I think one of them is is Enodia, which is like of the road or the way, but then she also has ones that are like blood eater and all of these things. And so these are all very different. She also has one that is savior. And while those different faces of the spirit are not the same as one another, they are still the same spirit. And so it kind of becomes so complicated and so infinite that it then ceases to matter. Mm, yeah, that's really lovely. Yeah. I mean, it also makes it sound like like really the, the difference isn't so much in what you say or, you know, what the offerings you might make, but more just sort of in the stance that you take to her, like sort of accepting the idea that this is a divine mother kind of figure, then you should approach not as necessarily like a magician or a wizard or something, but as like a child. Absolutely. 
And well, of course, when that's appropriate, because sometimes we are calling upon specific facets. So I, I would not call upon like, you know, Akate's form of the blood eater and be like, mama, um, that would that would not be something I would necessarily feel comfortable doing. But but that sort of that sincerity and that reverence of kind mm. of coming forth and sort of putting your faith in yourself in their hands in that matter, very much so, yes. I think there's something that like, you know, like I talk to a lot of mystic-y people on a regular basis. It's basically who I hang out with now for the most part. And something that I think comes up in these conversations but doesn't come up a lot in books that I see getting published, and so I'm really glad that you wrote about it, is this problem of discernment. And that when you sort of, just because you call a particular spirit doesn't mean, actually just because you call a particular spirit and a spirit shows up doesn't mean that that's the one that you dialed up. And especially in this sort of situation where you've got such a complicated being that you might be calling up where it's, it's not even a question of like, you know, is it this spirit or not? It's, is this the spirit in the face that I sort of called upon? Is it a different face or is it somebody else pretending to be them? Like, how do you kind of navigate that, that potential problem? I really find that preparation is really important when it comes to it. And also specificity is Mm -hmm. important. So for instance, it's going to be a very different experience if you come to your altar and it's dirty and there's flies in your altar water and you haven't said prayers at it in months or or maybe you have but you've only been doing curse work for you know a month or so and then you call out to the other side that's going to be a very different experience than if everything was clean everything was well maintained and taken care of you have cleansed the space first things like that so so i do find that that actual preparation is is going to be huge we we can do a lot to prevent these unfortunate run-ins with with spirits that we don't actually want to have contact with so i i think simply just keeping your space maintained and i do talk about kind of uh, what i call temperature energetics in the book a little bit where there are things that will make your altar hot and a hot altar is going to attract hot spirits these are things like 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 demons or, or kind of wrathful spirits or you know anything that we kind of put in the category of hot versus like a very cool altar that is that is cleaned and purified and and well maintained is going to bring in more like what we call like a cool spirit which is going to be something that's very helpful and healing and very kind of docile things like that so we have this idea there of kind of like like attracts like so if if your whole place is a mess and chaotic you're going to invite in things that really like that versus if everything is very peaceful and very harmonious then you're most likely going to attract something like that the spirit Uh, you want to see in your bedroom exactly Exactly. Now, at the same time, too, I think specificity is very important because where a lot of people, especially when they're new to witchcraft, they like to come to their altar and go, who is out there? Who wants to help me? And that's a huge open door inviting in whatever is out there. And sometimes you get something very good and sometimes you really do not get something good. But that's an invitation to bring in like whatever is out there that wants to interact with you. So being very clear about, you know, who it is you're trying to contact and also having trust in yourself to, you know, if this thing shows up and you have a bad feeling, trust that. Um, If it shows up and it feels great and, you know, you took all of your precautions and things like that, then you're probably going to be fine. It's, It's all about just using your noodle. Use your head. 
you know? Yeah, I mean, maybe the most important magical object that we have in our lives is our heart, when you think about yeah. it. I say that like it's a joke, but I feel like it's actually true. As much as that feels kind of very Hallmark Hardy. So before we get off this this topic, because like everything about this is huge, right? Like you go into so much in this book, right? Like candle magic, ancestral work, um, ghosts in general, uh, like the whole the whole shebang. Like I don't like it, it would be foolish to try to cover the entire thing in this interview. And of course, people need to buy it, right? So like you know, give them a taste. But um, there is. Oh, wow. Okay. Kat's still here. She got very upset. But uh, I I am curious, because, like, there is... When we talk about material... Okay, I'm going to pick her up and put her somewhere else. One sec. She escaped the first place that I hit her. Yes? Okay, sorry about that. She's been having a she's been in a, a mood because she is uh, I mean technically because she's dying. Um, but that's a whole that's a whole can of worms about the cat doing cat hospice. Great stuff. Anyway, not to be a complete downer, but um oh now I've now I've distracted myself. Oh so materia materia um let's talk about like the standard kit here because there's something you said kind of in passing in this book. That really caught my eye, and I wanted to make sure to ask you about it. And so you were talking about Rue in particular, as like, you know, great cleansing herb, great protective herb, but you mentioned that people sometimes carry Rue on them, but they also might carry a photo of Rue. And it it reminded me of sort of working with a saint through an icon. So is when you're working with Rue, is it because of the sort of substance of Rue? Or is there a spirit that you're working with through the Rue? Or is it the spirit of the Rue? How do you approach materia? Absolutely. So first we have to kind of understand what something that I call the spirit of everything. And this is kind of an animistic belief that kind of all things have a spirit. In my view, and this is not necessarily to blanket, you know, Mexican magic or whatever, but in in, in my understanding of it, I, I very much feel that all of us and all living things are expressions of God that is experiencing itself through these things. So I, I believe in, you know, God in heaven, but I also believe that, you know, I am part of God or um, this plant is also a part of God and things like that. So so everything has this spirit in it. And so when, when we do this work, I, I, I talk about, and I even made a post today about working the spirit or working with spirit. And that's kind of a catch-all for this life force in all things. And so when you're working with a plant, you're not just working with just the dried crushed herb. You're 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 working with the spirit of that plant that resides within it. And and that's too why I, I always have problems when people say like there's no magic in the tools, you know, you are the magic. And I'm like, well those herbs, roots and stones that you just used would beg to differ because they just did a lot for you. And I, I think that we need to kind of understand that. When it comes to the rue though, Rue is is very, very powerful, and we find it used all over the place. And in Italian culture, they have a special charm, and I have no idea how to pronounce it. I believe it's a chimorura. That might be incorrect. But what it is, is it's like a often like a necklace or a pendant that is in the shape of Rue with little 
like protective charms hanging off of it. So a lot of times people will even just use the the image of Rue to sort of evoke this Rue spirit to protect them. Very similarly to like how I'm currently wearing a saint's medal. Like, well, this medal is not the saint, but their image on it carries a bit of that spirit, that that power with them. And that's something that that is also an image that is recognized by things that might try to harm you. A little bit like how people would put out like, uh, you know, this house is protected by ADT or we have security cameras or beware of dog. You know, that that sign is not necessarily the security system, but it's it's still in its own right a deterrent of sorts. Does that make sense? I hope so. That makes perfect sense. I mean, it's also (laughs) I mean, there's also like a language to all of this that is important, especially if we are. If we are emanations of some greater one, then we are also in a way symbols in the language of the one. Maybe I'm going too far with this. But so a lot of herbs in here, a lot of great uses of herbs. But the standard kit for like a like someone who's doing this kind of magic, it seems like it's very much it's incredibly accessible stuff for the most part. Right. Like it's an egg. It is Vic's Vapor Rub, which I was very excited to see. Actually, since because I feel like that might be a surprise for some people. Vic's Vapor Rub. How do you use it? What's the what's the. What is the virtue of Vic's Vapor Rub? Vapor Rub. I always say Vapor Rub, but I guess it's just the one R, right? Vapor Rub. <laughs> and unless in, in Mexican culture, we often just drop off the, the, the B in general, and it's just Vic's Vapor Rub. Um, but uh, so Vic's is it's very dear to my heart. It's also something that's very deeply ingrained into Mexican culture where we really kind of believe that it can cure everything, but also the way that it's worked with is not just medicinal. It's it's very much seen as as being sort of magical, this, this mystical substance that cures all things. And something that was really interesting is while I was doing the research for this, I was interviewing people. A lot of people had stories about their grandparents, especially kind of the older generation, not so much now, but the older generation, full on eating it, like a spoonful of it or um, like stirring a spoonful of it into like their morning tea. I do not recommend that. That is very much something that they re- that they say don't do on the label. But Vicks has a very distinct signature scent. And that scent comes from two very powerful, very well-known plants that are eucalyptus and camphor. And these plants are incredible. They are used for healing. They are used for cleansing and purification. They are used for protection. They're very high vibrational. So when we burn things like camphor, then, or like, you know, bring their spirits out, a lot of things can't hang out in that vibration because it's so high but certain higher spirits things like angels and whatnot can very much exist in that in that space so it's it's deeply cleansing and it's very very healing it's it's, so it's a very magical substance even if it's not something that we would right off the bat look at and go oh that looks like witchcraft but if you look at the old advertisements for Vicks Vapor Rub because it's been around for over a hundred years if you look at the old advertisements for it they do kind of brand it as a magical substance that's not just there to like help you breathe when you have a cold it it was more than that it was a little bit like Florida water back in the day that's super cool and like using that in like a magical sort of way I guess we shouldn't eat it though I get I mean who knows maybe that's just because we will become too powerful and that's why they were (laughs) 
But what kinds of, of modalities are you going to use Vicks Vapor Rub in if you're doing it magically? I mean, as opposed to like the standard, you know, just rubbing it on your skin. Like, is there, is it sort of like a an offering? Is it something you would just burn in lieu of like a camphor incense? Or like, how do you, how are you deploying it? So you want to be careful with it because Vicks Vapor Rub is flammable. It will ver- burst into flame. So you got to be careful with it a little bit. But I have a whole section in the book on spells utilizing Vicks Vapor Rub because you're, you're right. It's very an accessible form of magic because we have to remember that this magic came from people who don't have a lot of stuff but had great need. So they had to accomplish a lot with whatever they had on hand. And usually, you know, Vicks Vapor Rub is one of those things. So in the book, I talk about ways to cleanse your home with using Vicks Vapor Up and a pot of boiling water. We also talk about using it to like mark doorways and things like that with protective symbols because you know, eucalyptus and camphor are really great for just chasing out anything that's low vibrational or dark or nasty or anything like that. It's really great for just really repelling any of that stuff. It's also excellent for doing things like road opening work because camphor is very, very opening. And it's it's honestly, it's the use of Vicks Vapor Rub to like open up the sinus passages, right? You know, because we, we breathe it in and suddenly, you know, everything opens up. Same thing with, with like opening the road too. We can utilize camphor and eucalyptus to really kind of clear out things that are ahead of us. So I talk about, you know, anointing candles with it, all kinds of stuff. And that was that was a fun section because it's not really necessarily traditional. Um, a lot of times people don't use this in, in their magic, but I liked really diving deep into and exploring kind of the magical ability of Vicks Vapor Rub. That, yeah, I mean, that's such a, a joy to have as just information. And it's like, it's just a thought. I mean, because I mean, the other sort of like standard kit things I'd be like, like scissors, string, like we've, you know, like you you hear about this stuff in traditional magic a lot, especially like I think Italian stuff, it tends to pop up a lot, but like the Vicks Vapor Rub, the eggs, love the eggs. So I feel like we've, we've kind of like approached the one hour mark here. So I don't want to keep you too much longer because you've been, you know, so wonderful. And also like super patient with the cat. Much appreciated. Um, I understand that cat life. <laughs> she... She is a, a joy and a terrible burden, and I love her very much. But before we go, I just want to make sure, like, what if I, what if I, what do I have in my extensive notes here that we have not talked about that feels important? Actually, wait, if we can go back to folk Catholicism for just a second. Yeah. An aspect of folk Catholicism that I love and that I feel like people should be more aware of is the idea that there are saints in it that are not officially canonized, right? Because, I mean, like, even when I hear people talk about using saints in a magical way, it's usually like ones that they're on the, they're on the, you know, they're in the yearbook for the saints. So like everybody, like as much as like St. Cyprian has this whole like reputation for being like Mr. Dark Spooky guy, he's, he's on the list. There's a feast day. So what are some, who are some saints that, that show up in this book who are sort of folk saints in the sense that they're not on the official like Roman Catholic register, but you know, they're important. They're, they're potent. They're out there. People hang out with them. Absolutely. And I love folk saints because they really kind of exemplify this idea of folk Catholicism. Because folk Catholicism is very much the people's Catholicism, but not the institution's Catholicism, which is a divide that I think we really need to pay attention to. Because the folk really don't care if the church deemed these people, you know, saints or, or you know, as as canon, which I think is really important. They didn't wait for the church because the, the, the church will only accept things if, if it really meets their agenda. You know, were these people devoutly Catholic? Well, they weren't, so, you know, they can't be a saint. Or, or did this Marian apparition say things that support the church? Well, if it didn't, then that's not something that we're going to say was real or whatever. So when it comes to folk Catholicism, 
we really often don't care what the church has to say. And I think that that's an important kind of distinction. When it comes to folk saints, we have so many really neat ones, especially within the, the Mexican culture. One of the ones that I talk about in the book is one known as Jesus Malverde, who is often kind of labeled as like the Robin Hood of, of Mexico. He was very into kind of stealing from the rich and then providing things to, you know, the lower class communities who were either in, in poverty or in great need. And he has an excellent story because he was an amazing burglar. He was like, he was like a shadow or like a cat. Like he just got in and got out. No one could catch him. And so part of his story is that at kind of the, the the crescendo of this, the the governor kind of calls him out and is like, like I have a challenge for you. I you need to steal this thing out of my house, and if you can get it, then we'll leave you alone. But if you're caught, then you know you're ours. And the the stories vary from what the object is that he's supposed to steal, and sometimes it's like like a sword above the mantle. Other times it's the governor's daughter herself and but either way like no matter kind of what the object is he does it he he goes in and actually gets it and gets out alive and but of course the governor is not happy about that they hunt him down they find him they execute him publicly and then leave his body there to just rot in front of everybody to see. So it, it was a huge injustice because yes, he was a criminal, but also at the same time, he was helping a lot of people. He stood for something. And though he was not a, at least not in any of the story is written that he's, you know, devoutly Catholic and showed great, you know, piety and connection with God or whatever that's generally needed in order to be called, you know, a saint, even after his death, when people would ask him for help, he would still come through like a saint. And that's something that really marks a lot of these folk saints is even after death, they continue to help people. Juan Soldado is another one who was a who was a soldier. So Juan, Juan Soldado um, translates to Soldier John um, is what they call him. And he was framed for the murder of a young girl and unjustly kind of shot by a firing squad. In fact, they didn't even want to take the time to put together the firing squad. So they just told him, eh, run for the border. And so he did, and then they shot him. And where he was shot, miracles began to happen. So they tried to clean up the blood and it began to reappear. The The stain began to reappear over and over again. So interesting. Because it's like, cause like, that's a miracle, but at the same time, like I feel like so like the theme that seems to be running through these is like this idea of like you create a restless dead. You create kind of what would be a haunting. Like there's blood on the walls. You can't clean the blood off no matter what you do. This is a – I love this. This rules. Please continue. Sorry right. for interrupting. Well, and what's interesting too is that there's so much crossover between something that we would call sacred and something we would call profane. So like something you know, a lot of people would maybe call that a saintly thing, whereas other people would be like, oh, that sounds scary. Kind of similarly to how a lot of things that were said to prove that people were saints, things like resistance to drowning or resistance to burning or, or to being hurt, um, were also the same things used to prove that people were witches in the witch trials. So there's a lot of of, of crossover in these areas. But yeah, so so people would, you know, pray to Juan Soldado for all kinds of things, for extra money to make rent or to help with addiction issues or to find lost people or things like that. And they would still come through on the other side and help people. And to this day, they, they are still doing that. That's so... I'm such a fan of folk saints. And especially like these ones, because like I feel like a lot of times when people talk about a folk saint, at least in like a European context, it's like the saint who's also a dog. And it's like, that's like yeah. fine... 
like that's cute but like i like this seems much more useful in terms of just like people need help and here are people who will actually help them so i actually i feel i, I feel like i would be remiss if i didn't ask you about i'm gonna say this wrong because i my pronunciation skills are terrible and i'm sorry uh santa muerte yeah because she is huge like she is like very big and the sense I get is that she can be incredibly helpful, especially to the poor, but she's also very scary. Uh, maybe just because she's a skeleton a lot of the time, though maybe that's not, you know, maybe that's that's a bit that's a bit judgmental, a bit superficial to be scared of the skeleton. How, like, what's what is the sort of general story of Santa Muerte, and how scared of her should we be? So, La Santa Muerte. I will start this by saying that my chapter for her is is not necessarily very popular, simply because I, I wrote the chapter that I felt that we needed and not the chapter that we necessarily wanted. Because people really forget that she's death or they romanticize that to the point that it no longer means anything. But I think it's very important that we realize that when we are working with La Santa Muerte, we are working with death. And that's something that we really need to fully understand. So she definitely does have the fastest growing kind of, we, we call it a cult or, or kind of a following all around the world. And she appeared not that long ago. Oh gosh, I looked it up the other day. I can't remember the exact year, but it was fairly recently that Doña Queta put out the shrine to La Santa Muerte. And before that, we really don't know specifically where she came from. There's a lot of possibilities that she was brought over from, you know, Europe or, or was an indigenous spirit or things like that. There's a lot of possibilities of where she could have come from. And people don't realize necessarily that there are two sides to her. Because on one side, she can be very loving and very giving. But on the other side, too, she can be very wrathful. She is what we call a hot spirit because she does not take any shit and will correct you if there is something that you are not doing or something that you are doing that she does not like. And in the United States especially, there is a tendency to sanitize everything for kind of PR purposes, right? People love to talk up the fact that she is she's very loving while at the same time trying their best to sort of erase this sort of wrathful side of her. So my, my journey with her, I about three, four years ago, I decided that I wanted to be a devotee. And because she had been coming to me in dreams and all this stuff. So I started talking with devotees, former devotees, people who were devotees in Mexico and devotees that are in the United States. I began reading books and taking classes from devotees as well and talking with people who had experiences and interactions with her. And while some of them were, were very loving and very kind of generous, a large portion of them were not great stories because when people do not approach her respectfully and with the devotion she requires, because there are, there are certain things, certain taboos with, with La Santa Muerte, like you don't necessarily put her on an altar with other spirits. She kind of needs her own altar. Or if she does have certain spirits on her same altar, they have to be specific ones or their statues can't be as big. There's, there's all kinds of rules when it comes to working with her. And when we're not prepared for that and when we're not approaching her as death, and we're not respecting her in that manner, then things can go very south for people. So things happen where people promise her things, like um, I will get a chest tattoo of you if you bring me this thing. And then she comes through because she's she's very good at coming through. But then people go, oh, well, 
I'm not sure I actually want to get a chest tattoo or maybe I can't afford it. And then when they kind of leave her hanging on what people promised her, then things go very bad for them. And and, and how that goes depends on kind of who you're talking to in the situation in the story. But I, I've heard some pretty graphic things. And so when people aren't respecting her, that's when that they are going to come into contact with something that is not not friendly. And in the United States, we really like to sanitize things and kind of take away this kind of scary part of them. But when we do that, then people no longer feel the need to respect it. And yeah. then they start treating her like an ATM as something that's just going to pump out all these things that they want and give them everything that they want. And then then that's when things go very south for people. So the reason why I wrote the chapter the way that I wrote it was because I wanted to sort of be a voice of balance because I get DMs all the time from people that are like, oh, I've been told that everything I've heard about about Santa Muerte being like wrathful or, you know, doing any of these things, it's, it's all just a lie. Sometimes people say it's a lie by the church or it's just a lie in general. And that concerns me because then they start approaching her haphazardly, just asking her for things, not paying her. And then things go very badly for them. And so I just want people to remember that they are summoning death into their home. And if they're going to do that, then they need to be on their best behavior. They need to be respectful and they really need to handle her accordingly. Yeah. Actually, that's an interesting... So like when you have a shrine to death in your house, even if you're doing everything like incredibly respectfully, everything's on the level, you and her, great rapport, everything's going great. Does that does that still sort of emanate a kind of residue of the grave in the house? Like, is it sort of like if you're living with your grandmother, you maybe shouldn't be doing this just because if she's sort of close to maybe I'm thinking about this because of my cat. But if you like if she's close to the end of her life, like just having the statue in the house might be the thing that kind of like nudges her all the way off this mortal coil. Or is it more or is it like helpful? Is it sort of like, you know, death and I have an understanding so maybe my grandma has sort of been like a, a like a mildly protected aura, just to use this like you know like this 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 example. But I mean, like I feel like anyone who has like some kind of sickness, or even like the idea that like you might just have more sickness in the house because because death is in the house with you. I think it really depends on how she's approached because mm. I I do think in like if we're talking about you know say that you have like a grandmother who's who's very very elderly and maybe kind of near the end at this point working with with La Santa Muerte might be a really beautiful experience for kind of helping her to cross over and maybe kind of um helping her maybe go without fear or maybe understand the process of death better, things like that. It, it might be a very very beautiful experience. At the same time though, if you're just haphazardly without any understanding lighting santa muerte candles asking her for stuff things like that and just kind of making a mess in your home when, when you're working with her then i do think that it can also go the other direction i heard quite a few stories from people who were kind of approaching her in that manner of just kind of gimme stuff you're now part of my aesthetic you look great on my instagram things like that and then you know they had pets die things like that so i i think it 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 depends on how she's approached and why she's approached. I find that a lot of people who start working with her really don't know why, apart from the fact that she seems neat. And while that's great, and you can maybe be interested in her lore and maybe artwork with her and things like that in it, it's very different to then invite it into your home or try to work with her without any understanding besides, I don't know, she seems cool, gonna invite death into my home. 
I think people just simply need to pump the brakes a little bit and just make sure that they are are ready to do what they need to do and take the spirit seriously. Yeah, I think that's incredibly reasonable and I and hopefully sobering advice for people who you know are going to jump both with both feet into this sort of thing and maybe only will find about about the possible consequences when they start showing up. So that's a bit of a of a I don't I don't want to say a dark note to end this on a bit of a you know like like let's you know. Actually, here's a question. Just because we're closing things out, if there was one sort of bit of advice you wanted to leave people with, either about about the book or about just things outside of the book, or just even like I don't like I I, I mean in my head I'm conceiving this as like spiritual kind of magicy witchcraft advice, but like you could just you know like this is there's a really if you ever if you're ever in Portland Oregon there's a great uh, restaurant you should go to like like any kind of advice that you want to throw throw people's way as we close things out kind of similar to what we were just talking about just remember that you know witchcraft and you know this kind of spirit work that we're talking about is it's not a game and it's not a trend it's not you know a metaphor or a joke you know this is this is very real work and i think people forget about that i think they just think it's something for instagram or something that they do on the side like a hobby but it is very real and we need to respect it as such Actually, this is a, this is just a, like a life like a work life balance question I have for you because you just sort of like just you know caused it to twinkle into my brain. But like on the whole, like when you are developing relationships with spirits, when you're doing this kind of work, like how much time like a week do you say would you like ballpark that you you devote to this kind of stuff? Like, are you are you sort of like you know like once a week I have to make my offerings to like the six or seven saints that I'm like really doing stuff with, or is it like every day you do a little bit of something? You know, or like Tuesdays are for this saint, Thursdays are for this spirit, Fridays are for just me feeling good in my in my house, you know, because we all need time for ourselves, because that is one of the spirits that we have to work with the most. I, again, I say that like a joke, but actually I feel like it's true now that I've actually said it out loud. We are the spirits we work with the most. But yeah, like how much time are you throwing at this sort of thing? It really depends on the week. And I do this as a full-time job now, so it's it's a lot of time at this point. But for me, it's less about how much time I'm at my altar, you know, saying specific prayers or doing specific offerings or whatever, as much as it is how I live my life. You know, what I'm doing, you know, I, I say prayers while I'm unloading the dishwasher and I, I, I notice the divinity in little things like, you know, weeds pushing up through the concrete and whatnot. Um, I think those are just as important as, you know, specific rituals spent at the altar, things like that. That's really lovely. I'm so I'm so glad we, we did this. If people want to to check you out, they want to check out the things you are doing, they want to follow you, where where should they go? What should they do? What should they plug into the search engine of their choice? The best place to kind of find me is going to be on Instagram. I am at Oregon Wood Witch with little underscores in between. Uh, that's the best place to reach me. You can stay up to date with classes I'm holding, stuff I'm, I'm up to, as well as get access to my Etsy store where I sell some magical products and to book services with me. I offer psychic readings, spell services, spiritual healing, all that kinds of stuff is what I offer. And that's the best place to reach me is through the Instagram. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on. This has been this has been just really great. Thank you so much to Jay Allen Cross for coming on the show and for that really wonderful conversation. I will have links in the show notes to where you can buy his book and where you can check out his Instagram, learn more about him and learn more about what 
he's doing. And, you know, it got me thinking this conversation about a couple of things. One of which is that I, I think, you know, this idea of the commodification of witchcraft comes up a lot. But not so much how it goes hand in hand with the infantilization of witchcraft. And it's something that I had never really put together. And I'm, I'm really glad he brings up like the, the way that selling the occult kind of creates an infantilized, defanged version of the occult. Or, of course, an, an infantilized approach to it that can lead to people running unawares into its still very uh, potent fangs. Something he also brought up was that he couldn't quite remember when Doña Queta set up her public shrine for Santa Muerta. So I, I went looking into it, and I found that she put out her big public shrine for Santa Muerta in 2001 in what seemed to be the sort of climax, or a climax, of a revitalization of the Santa Muerta cult that had been happening since the 1990s. But I, I looked into sort of the history of Santa Muerta just a little bit, you know, just a touch. And um, according, according to Kingsbury and Chestnut 2020, the uh, Spanish colonial records, or at least the, the records of the Inquisition, contain a document called Concerning the Superstitions of Various Indians from the Town of San Luis de La Paz. And it has the earliest mention of Santa Muerta that they could find, and that was in 1797. And there was apparently a, uh, you know, that's saint death, but there was apparently a king death showing up in colonial records in, I think, Guatemala more than a hundred years before even that. And they point to sort of, you know, these these joined these joined threads of not just the Grim Reaper, right, right which is the obvious sort of touchstone because of all the, the robes, but specifically a kind, a version of the Grim Reaper that shows up in Spain called uh, La Parsa, or the Parched One, which is a female Grim Reaper. So, you know, it, it even has the sort of, you know, the, the female identity to it. And an Aztec death goddess called Mictacuatl. I said that really terribly, uh, so I will put a link to the article Kingsbury and Chestnut 2020 in the show notes so you can read that word yourself and and really figure out how it's supposed to be said. And lastly, um, when I when I brought up the idea that these folk saints sort of sound like haunted houses or the sort of like the idea of like an, a restless dead, it either got me thinking afterwards or I was thinking at the time, who knows, the past is another country, uh, about something that Jesse Hathaway Diaz says a lot. And I don't know if he originated this idea. I think he might have. But if, if he didn't, he's certainly someone who talks about it. Uh, and you should definitely check out his uh, podcast that he does with Al Cummins called Radio Free Golgotha. But this idea that, especially with like saints relics, you know, holding on to the finger bone of a saint or the toe of a saint or the femur of a saint, you are effectively creating a restless dead by by not allowing the spirit to rest. You're kind of blackmailing the saint into doing miracles for you from beyond the grave so it can go back to sleep or something like that. And I, th I think that's just a really lovely thought and it helps to evince the ways that Catholicism, especially sort of, you know, the, the wider, you know, Catholic universe of folk Catholicism, allows Catholicism, even, you know, what we might think of as like Catholicism classic or, you know, Orthodox Catholicism to contain within it the traces of necromancy, of ancestor worship, of even possibly land spirits that the more sort of orthodox author authori 
authoritarian parts of i actually said authoritative instead of authoritarian during the interview which i'm a little embarrassed about but you know we're all growing we're all becoming people um we're all becoming people every day we're people becoming people another thing that i, I say is a joke that i kind of believe but yeah even as the more authoritarian uh, and orthodox forms of catholicism might sort of very actively try to stamp these kinds of things out or say you know that's not us that's something else like they they survive you know it's that it's that meme of the dinosaurs becoming petroleum the petroleum being used to make plastic the plastic being used to make toy dinosaurs the 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 ghost of the original remains in the artifice or the sort of the new form all hail the new flesh etc anyway this has been witch hassle thank you so much for listening if you like the show if you want to support the show by all means go to patreon.com slash witch hassle throw a few dollars there's some patreon only stuff on there i'll try to put more on there the summer's gonna be weird so hopefully be able to do some more patreon stuff maybe fewer interviews i don't know trying to set some stuff up right now uh so hopefully i'll be able to talk about you know fingers crossed weird french canadian stuff you know let's let's hope but either way you know patreon.com slash witch hassle if you like the show and you want to support it leave reviews on the internet tell people i think is probably helpful just tell a bunch of people that you know Tell your friends, make new friends, tell them, tell your family, get into weird conversations with relatives over meals now that people are getting vaccinated and you can maybe have meals over a table with your relatives again in the way that you might not have been able to before. So that's, uh, you know, now nah, I'm just feeling optimistic. Summer's here and it's 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 incredibly hot and uncomfortable, but good golly, is it, is it wonderful to be in the bright sunshine. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baverstam and recorded by Edward Lee. Good luck with the work ahead.